Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. Look, I think he's got a, a huge challenge ahead of him. He's waited a long time. <laughs> Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy and perspective from D.C.'s top names. The war in Ukraine is entering a critical phase. But so far, Russian strategic objectives have been defeated. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Charles III delivers his first speech as king. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics on another historic day in the UK with its new monarch addressing the path forward even as he mourns the loss of his mother. We'll be joined this hour by Ellie Woodacre, royal expert from Winchester University, along with Emmy award-winning documentarian Anthony Geffen, who conducted Queen Elizabeth's only televised interview. Later this hour, the Ukrainian counteroffensive takes hold, surprising many with its speed these past couple days. We'll get an update from Washington and a conversation with Bloomberg national security expert Nick Wadhams. Our signature panel is back together. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us for the hour as Bloomberg Radio brings you the first draft of history on another historic day in London. Sound from a 96-gun salute at the Tower of London this morning for the passing of the 96-year-old queen. As the UK proceeds with 10 days of mourning. And condolences continue to stream in from around the world, including here in Washington. President Biden now confirms he will attend Queen Elizabeth's funeral, though details on who will join him remain unknown, as are details about the ceremony. King Charles III spoke in a televised address to Britain and the Commonwealth. As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself, throughout the remaining time God grants me, to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. A somber speech, as you heard live on Bloomberg Radio, was recorded in the blue drawing room at Buckingham Palace. The new king addressed his own family. With Catherine beside him, our new prince and princess of Wales will, I know, continue to inspire and lead our national conversations, helping to bring the marginal to the center ground where vital help can be given. I want also to express my love for Harry and Meghan as they continue to build their lives overseas. The king later held a private audience with the UK's new prime minister, Liz Truss, as part of his first full day as king. That's where we start in a conversation with Ellie Woodacre, Winchester University royal expert. Ellie, thank you for joining us. And I know it's late where you are, so we appreciate your time here. Uh, I wonder your thoughts 
just to start off with on this address, he looked like he had had an emotional couple of days, as anyone would, uh, hours after losing their own mother. But we also saw him outdoors today, shaking hands with people on that rope line. It's a pretty dramatic uh, a video to see before he delivered this speech. How did he do? I think he's gotten off to a, a very good start. It, obviously, again, it is it is a huge personal shock to him. And obviously, we all knew that the Queen was in increasingly poor health with her mobility issues. And obviously, he would have been prepared for this day, you know, for many decades. Yeah. But yet the personal kind of toll that it must take on him as a son losing his mother, mm -hmm. as well as having to step into this incredibly important role of becoming king all at once. It is it is a major kind of shift in his own life and in, in the life of Britain as well. It seems most of the narrative has been around his personality now, how, he, you know, he's he's going to have to go from being a, kind of a, a quiet onlooker to someone who is more engaged and is speaking more and, and spending more time in public. Is he prepared for that? Absolutely. I mean, I think Prince Charles has always been a very public figure, but I do think we will see a shift and a change in him and that while he was Prince of Wales, he was more outspoken about causes that were dear to him. He yeah. was more, um, again, able to kind of play to his own personal interests as well um, in a way that he will now need to step back from. And he was very honest about that in his speech about kind of taking on this new role that the sovereign kind of stands apart and, and, and occupies this very particular position as head of state. So mm -hmm. it's almost like Charles, the individual, is having to kind of be set aside to become King Charles. Can you articulate the challenges he's facing? And I don't know if I should call them political challenges because, of course, he's not going to be governing this nation, but he's coming uh, into power at, uh, at a precarious time with Brexit, with a brand new prime minister. Of course. I mean, you're absolutely right in that his role as the kind of constitutional monarch means that he's not directly responsible for setting policy and for ruling. Yeah. And yet it is a difficult time for the nation. It's a difficult time for the world. I think we've all felt like we're living through kind of historic times with all of the challenges of the last few years politically, with the pandemic, um, with everything going on uh, with the war in the Ukraine, climate change. I mean, the list of you know issues is huge. And certainly for the new prime minister, Liz Trust, she will be dealing with those. But it is Charles's role to try to kind of steady the ship of state in, in, in these times. And, and I think obviously his own mother came to the throne in the post-war period when Britain was very much kind of rebuilding. And she herself saw Britain through years of political turbulence, economic turbulence. And yet, you know, again, her role was to provide continuity in all of that. So I think Charles sure. will seek to do the same. It, it, but this is why a lot of Americans, you know, use the term figurehead, because I, I think we all have a hard time understanding what it is the king or queen is supposed to do. Absolutely. Well, his role is to be head of state. And and yeah. yes, it is a largely ceremonial role. I mean, mm -hmm. constitutional monarchy has developed, you know, since the kind of glorious revolution back in the 17th century to the present day. And that has led to the fact that there's a strange situation where, in theory, there is a great deal of power that the royals still have in terms of prerogative. But in practice, what that means is that that the royals do not exercise, that the sovereign does not exercise that prerogative. And, right. and so their job is to be apolitical and to be merely, as you said, more of a figurehead as, mm -hmm. as head of state. Elliot, is, what do you make of the nod and, and the language that he chose to reach out to Harry and Meghan 
uh, toward the end of the address. I wish them luck, I think he said, in building their lives overseas. Is that uh, was was that the right thing to say at this time? Did it sound like a kiss off to you? How would you describe it? No, I think it was it was very significant that he included them. And I think it is important that I, I, I think the monarchy is moving into this more slimmed down uh, format, if you like, that focuses on the direct line of succession of which, you know, Harry and Meghan are part. I mean, Harry is now yeah, the son of the sovereign. And that, that does put him in a very significant position. So I think. I think he was being inclusive, if you like, and trying to kind of show his immediate family as being the kind of the key center of the royal family and including Harry and Meghan. So that was reaching out in a, in a genuine way, in your opinion. I think so. I think so. Again, obviously, you know, mu- much of that kind of discussion around his family was talking about William taking on the role of Prince of Wales and Catherine, his mm-hmm. wife, as Princess of Wales. Um, but the fact that, again, he did mention Harry and Meghan, I think, made it that he wanted it to not just be about William, you know, it, it, you know moving up the rank, if you like, in terms yeah. of the succession that he was including and mentioning them. And again, supporting their choice to, to build a different life for themselves. Ellie, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Ellie Woodacre is Winchester University's royal expert in helping us understand some of the next steps and challenges for the new King Charles. I'm not used to saying it yet, but I will get there. As we add another voice to the conversation, Anthony Geffen, been looking forward to this, Emmy-winning documentarian, produced The Coronation. Remember this documentary? It was Queen Elizabeth's only television interview. A few years back, he's CEO and creative director of Atlantic Productions and joins us now on Bloomberg Sound On. Anthony, welcome. Great. Thanks. Very nice to be talking to you today. Well, I look forward to your reflections on the Queen, but first I wonder, how did you feel seeing King Charles speak today? I think, you know, I think it's really hard because in a way the Queen, you know, the Queen has just uh, died. And, you know, but the British monarchy has a system of out goes one and in comes another. So... Uh, you know, we've got a new era. Um, I think he's a, he's a fine guy. He's, he's waited a long time to to get the job. Uh, and I think he, he's going to do a good job, you know, once he gets going. Many of us in America, including me, by the way, have been struck by the level of emotion uh, that people are showing in the U.K. And, and I wonder how that emotion plays out for her son, the, the new king. Oh, I think hugely. I mean, uh, they've always had a very close uh, relationship. Um, and I think, you know, he, he's, he's like anyone with a mother uh, yeah. at that age. You know, you have, you have a very close... I mean, he had a particularly close uh, bond with her, uh, uh, you know, beyond other members of the family. Does that create a, uh, in a level of, of empathy, though, with the people? They're, they're all, obviously, they're mourning his mother as he does the same. And that image of him outside yeah. shaking yeah. hands with people on the rope line today uh, was really oh, striking. Very powerful, and... Uh, you know he's a he's a very um, interesting man, a very enduring man, and I and I think people don't really know him. He's been sitting in the shadows. That's right. And he's now going to come out of the shadows. And I think he's been preparing and thinking about the role for much longer than any English monarch in a thousand years of history. And so I think he, you know I think he's going to do a good job. It's very hard though for him over the next period, really, because you know people. People are going to take a long time to let the Queen go. Uh, you know, I think they'll, they'll turn it into a memory, but it's, it's, at the moment it's very... I mean, walking around Britain today, everyone from young and old, you know, are very, very emotional about it. It's, it's really interesting and not surprising. Did you get to know him well when you were making the coronation? Yeah, uh, yeah, I've, I've met him on several other occasions. And uh, again, I've been very impressed by, by him. And I think he's, 
again, he's had to play everything very low key because, you know, in some ways he he's played high key in terms of his you know views about plants and buildings. But but actually, he's held back for a while. And I think the older the Queen got, the more he wanted to hold back. He didn't want to be seen in any way to be to be you know raining on her parade. So how did you ever get the Queen to do her only ever sit down interview like this? Well. Extraordinary, really. I, uh, with a colleague of mine called Alistair Bruce, we decided 20 years before we got there in 2017 that we should really make this this film with the Queen. And the Queen was very open to discussions, but she wasn't open to making a film about the coronation. Flash forward many, many years later, and it's kind of interesting. That I think the Crown had quite an impact, if you think about it, because in the Crown, you have Claire Foy playing the Queen the TV in show. the coronation. Okay. Yes, and I think that the Queen always said to me she'd never watched it, but I think she'd heard the influence. And I think huh. finally we managed to get across that actually the real story had to be told. No monarch had ever talked about the coronation in a thousand years. And it was very personal to her. And this was an extraordinary occasion that, you know, the world watched. But actually, you know, we didn't really know what she was thinking. And I think once we persuaded the powers that be and then the Queen that this was her opportunity to talk about something, A, she'd never talked about, B, no one had ever talked about, and was very personal to her. That was very special, but it was a very hard thing to do. Now, what's interesting is the New York Times called it, the program, you know, the, the Queen Unscripted, and that's correct. She huh. didn't go in with any scripts as she does normally. Yeah. We persuaded her to, we got footage, for example, of the coronation. Do you know what? She'd never seen the coronation, never seen the footage of the coronation, Incredible. ever. So to be showing her that, she actually got very emotional. Yeah. And it took her back to being, you know, 27 years old. And she told us wonderful stories about, you know, how uncomfortable the carriage was or other personal. No one ever has ever understood why the Queen came to a complete halt uh, going up Westminster Abbey. And she told us her foot got stuck in, the, in a rug. You know, so suddenly, you know, suddenly these very personal, very, very personal stories yeah. came out. And uh, we, we, another extraordinary thing is no monarch has ever really seen the St. Edward's crown twice. But the Queen knew that she could call this favour, and she called the favour. So we, we got her from the Tower of London, which is unprecedented, this, this amazing crown. And she it hadn't sure seen was. it. It was like an old friend. And, yeah. and she picked it up. And there's a very funny moment, actually. There's only three people who can touch the crown. One is the crown jeweller, uh, one is the Archbishop of Canterbury, and one is the Queen. And I said to the crown jeweller, could you move the crown? And she just picked it up and said, I am the Queen. I can move the crown. <laughs> The candor that, that we saw from the Queen was quite remarkable. She spoke about actually wearing that crown, uh, which was yeah. remarkable. Let's listen for a moment. Fortunately, my father and I have about the same sort of shaped head. Mm. But once you put it on, it stays. I mean, it, it just remains itself. Yeah. You have to keep your head very still. Yes. And you can't look down to read the speech. You have to take the speech up. Because if you did, your neck would break. It would fall off. So there are some <clears throat> disadvantages to crowns, but, but otherwise, they're quite important things. They're quite important things, Anthony. It's just a reminder <laughs> that she had a, a great sense of humor, which we saw on a number of visits here in the U.S. No, she did another wonderful story where we were talking to her. She didn't know the story of where the crown jewels went during the war. And we huh. found out through secret documents that they were buried under part of uh, West, the Windsor, uh, at Windsor Castle. Yeah. And she... We told her the story, and it's extraordinary. Basically, they shoved them in a hole, and their most valuable 
bits of the grungels. They put in a bath Oliver biscuits in. <laughs> so the Queen turned back to me and said, uh, what would have happened if the man who, who'd done that had died or disappeared? We never would have known where the grungels were. And she was way ahead of the, she had a very dry sense of humour. She was way ahead of the courtiers who couldn't quite keep up. And, she, you know, that's the Queen. She, she, she just had this wonderful wonderful sharp sense of humor and and it, and it she used it many many times throughout her reign but we were really lucky i think the period of filming this a lot of people in the courtiers i spoke to said she's never been this open she'd never been this relaxed yeah it's amazing. And it was because she was reliving that moment now i then found out why it took 20 years it's because her mother her father had just died uh, she was 27 years old. She didn't want to do the transmission of the coronation particularly. Mm-hmm. And so when it was finished, she literally got everything metaphorically and put it in the cupboard. And here I was coming along and <laughs> saying, can you now tell us about the coronation? But once right. she, she's amazing, once she got over that, my God, she wanted everything. She said, you know, well, what dress do you want me to wear? And what, you know, which, which diamond should I? I mean, it was amazing. She just threw herself into it. And she was constantly great fun. And off, off camera, she, she was so sharp on politics. I mean, I was just chatting to her about things. She was she was incredibly articulate. What would she think? What would she think of yeah. of the elaborate nature of this farewell, uh, this funeral that's now being planned? Whoa, that's difficult. I mean, the Queen, you know, really liked pageantry, and I think, you know, people talked to her. I'm sure about what was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but she was very modest too. So I mean, sometimes we might be talking about things, and she'd be let play everything down. But I actually think she. You know, she would actually probably, and I think she was consulted, I'm sure. Yes. She, she accepted yeah. that this needed to happen. I mean, you know, she's the greatest uh, monarch that we've had. And in, in a modern era where everybody's split on ideas, that's pretty extraordinary. But I was so lucky to spend the time with her where she literally said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be totally open with you. Yeah. The courtiers were not allowed to, to, to edit the questions. And she actually had a good time. You know, it's quite interesting. When the film was finished, she was pleased with it, but she wanted to see how... Her coaches at uh, or various people at Fannery and thought so she she asked them to watch it and she was quite nervous apparently waiting and they all came in they said you're brilliant and now that meant <laughs> a lot to her because she didn't do many programs like yeah, that yeah. so she was thrilled that she was good in the program fascinating conversation with Anthony Geffen I appreciate your joining us today Anthony and our condolences go out to you from Washington DC great great well not at all very nice speaking to you Let's assemble our panel for their take on everything we just heard. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are here. Rick, we talked yesterday about preparing for this speech and, and how to strike the right tone in what was really not a political speech. How did the king perform in this, I guess, very delicate address? Yeah, I think it was very straightforward, um, very formal. Uh, and, and, and I think we tend to diminish the fact that He's been in public life since the day he was born. I mean, not like, you know, professionally getting involved in politics in the United States or something and, Mm -hmm. you know, being in office for a long time. But since the day he was born, he was heir to the throne. And so everything he's done, every education, every class, every relationship that he's had has been in the context of someday you'll be king. Yes, right. And so I think that the he's been well trained for this moment. This was sort of what all of this was building up for. And the fact that it took over 70 years to get here uh, is a tribute to his patience. <laughs> and I think that, uh, and I think he did, he did just fine. And I love the fact that he um, uh, sort of talked about the, 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 his boys as a father would, not yes, as a right. king. Right. What did you make of that, uh, you know, reaching out to, after all the controversy 
uh, Jeannie reaching out to Harry and Meghan the way he did today. It was did, did he did he pick the right words to do that? Did it feel legitimate? Yeah, I, I think it did. I think it, he, he did a very good job today. And of course, uh, their children are, are in, have titles now that their grandfather is king. Um, and of course, it's very important as both a father and a father figure of a country that he display that publicly. And I thought he did a good job. I think the interesting part of this, of course, is one of the things that Queen Elizabeth did so beautifully was she became this symbol that was above politics, above the phrase. So whether you were left, right or center, you could have this love of and belief in the queen. And, you know, that's going to be something that we're going to see King Charles now have to live up to. And it's going to be a little bit tougher, I think, for him, because he is somebody who has been a little bit more explicit about his political views, not necessarily left and right, but on traditionalism and other things. And that's going to be something to watch because it's been that symbolic above the fray aspect that has, you know, revived the monarchy while the British Empire was collapsing around her. And for him to sustain that is going to be something he's going to have to walk a fine line doing. What did you think uh, today, Rick, seeing him outdoors, uh, shaking hands on the rope line, uh, you know, just really interacting with people and what appeared to be a very genuine exchange? He seemed to really enjoy it. Could he actually help to redefine what it is to be the monarch in England and be, you know, more outward, more public? Well, it's always been a challenge uh, for the British monarchy to modernize, right? And we've watched it painfully in full view, right? The difficulty uh, that they've had at, at important moments to understand, you know, how to deal with the masses. And I don't say that in a derogatory way, but, yeah. you know, it is what it is. And mm-hmm. and so for the really the first time uh, the public has spent any time with the new king, for him to be really with a very light security detail along a rope line, you know, interacting yeah. with people. At one point um, he pushed his security away. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I was watching some of it and I thought, get the guy out from in front of the camera. Bad <laughs> advance work. <laughs> Where's the king? Get out of the way. Um, and, uh, and and the reality is that uh, I think this is his instincts, right? He is sort of the new CEO of the firm, right? Yeah, we right. got used to this as almost like a corporation. Mm-hmm. And, and the reality is, I think he's got a moment where he can bridge two generations, you know, the World War II generation that his mother's from. And the reality is he will not govern long. He's 73 years old and his term as king will probably end, uh, you know, before the change in the decades, uh, you know, come near. And, and there'll be a brand new younger generation of, 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 of uh, monarchs uh, coming in from behind him. And he's got to be that transition. And I think so far... He's handling that transition very well. You know, it, it really is worth reminding ourselves, uh, Jeannie, that he's mourning his his own mother. Uh, this was just 24 hours ago. And to be thrust, I mean, this is part of the deal, immediate ascension, you're thrust into the public eye uh, at once. Uh, I wonder if he allows us to see more of that emotion along the way. 
And, and I think that's going to be a big question, how he handles all of this. To your point, as a human being, you just look at, you know, to have to go through the death of a parent so publicly mm -hmm. and assume this sort of great position at the same time. Of course, his mother went through the same thing as a very young woman in Kenya. And so he has a lot of, uh, you know, lessons there. As Rick pointed out, he's been training for this his entire life. But I think a lot of this has less to do necessarily with him. And certainly he has the ability to handle this. I think a lot of it also has to do with how people in Great Britain, across Great Britain, across the Commonwealth, quite frankly, respond to this. We can't recall it's not just that long ago that Barbados officially removed Queen Elizabeth hmm. as the head of state. We've had yeah. votes in Australia. There's questions about the continuation of the Commonwealth. She made this something you wanted to join versus being forced to join. So he's going to have a job ahead of him to keep this intact. And that is going to be something that he was in Barbados for that. That's going to be something he's trained for. He knows how to do it. But it is a big challenge for any figure and particularly someone who doesn't have the political power that's uh, you know more than opaque candling it there to do it with great insights on what lies ahead for the new king Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis Bloomberg politics contributors our signature panel on the fastest hour in politics coming up we turn to Ukraine I'm Joe Matthew this is Bloomberg Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Sound On. There is a convincing chorus that's growing louder surrounding the counteroffensive in Ukraine. As I read on the terminal, Ukrainian officials and Russian military bloggers alike are describing a counteroffensive in the north that has surprised in its speed the first time since the war began that Ukrainian forces have been able to push past Russian defenses on a more than tactical level. It's taking hold, and we're hearing from the State Department, the Pentagon, and NATO, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. The war in Ukraine is entering a critical phase. Ukrainian forces have been able to stall Moscow's offensive in Donbas, strike back behind Russian lines, and retake territory. Just in the last few days, we have seen further progress both in the south in Kherson and in the east in the Kharkiv region. He held a news conference today with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. It's focused uh, in the south, uh, around Kherson, uh, in that area. Uh, but we're also seeing Ukraine not only hold the line in, in the Donbass uh, and in the northeast, but, as you noted, uh, make a significant advance, uh, moving some 45 to 50 kilometers in one area past uh, what had been the existing uh, Russian line. I think it's too early to say 
exactly where this will go. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, spoke to this yesterday. The Russians have achieved minor tactical success in various parts of eastern Ukraine. But so far, Russian strategic objectives have been defeated. Have been defeated. Now six months plus a couple of weeks. And I know we're headed for a tough winter. That's what all the analysis has told us. But this appears to be a good moment for Ukraine. Let's bring in Bloomberg National Security team leader Nick Wadhams for a little more on this. Nick, the the Secretary uh, General of, of NATO here, Jens Stoltenberg, calling this a critical phase. What happens in the next couple of weeks for us to get a sense of whether this is working? Well, we're going to see very quickly whether this counteroffensive stalls. Uh, President Zelensky, in his nightly address uh, this evening in Ukraine, said that uh, Ukrainian forces had taken another 30 settlements. And you're uh, wow. seeing, obviously, as you mentioned, the uh, the commentary from Russian bloggers as well gives you a sense that maybe this might be real. Uh, the CIA director, William Burns, was at a conference uh, yesterday in which he said that Uh, He believed Russia's campaign had been uh, and would turn out to be a failure. And uh, so, you know, you've seen a lot of support for the Ukrainians. Uh, Secretary Blinken was in Kiev and and crucially offered another uh, $2 billion in support uh, for Ukraine. So you're starting to see the U.S. really amp up again its military and economic support. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's $2.8 billion, and not only for Ukraine, it's for our Eastern European allies as well. Uh, essentially fortifying that entire region, Nick. What does that tell you about our objectives? Well, I think uh, what you're seeing is a real effort to deter uh, Vladimir Putin from doing anything further beyond Ukraine, but also it's a push to uh, get other nations to step up. The U.S. uh, wants to see uh, more money contributed by uh, the U.K., France, all sorts of other nations that uh, it says, you know, are, are talking the talk on Ukraine, but they'd also like to see them contribute more money. Would it be worth a surge, if I can use that term, of weapons or cash or something that we can do right now to help tip the balance further in Ukraine's favor? Or is this really up to Ukraine at this point? Well, I mean, that's what they say they're doing. There was a a U.S. military official on a call today who said they were thinking of supplying Gray Eagle armed drones, uh, so stepping it up a notch in terms of military hardware. And uh, they're they're doing another $675 million drawdown on uh, U.S. inventories. Uh, that's going to include, you know, precision-guided artillery shells and all sorts of weaponry. So what you're seeing from the U.S. is a real push to uh, amp up the military support beyond uh, weapons that they had previously conceived. It does beg the question, which I know a lot of lawmakers in Washington have been asking, uh, why why wait till now? Couldn't we have given all this stuff in the outset, maybe shortened this war? Well, I, I mean, it is a good question, and, and you know, a lot of folks on the Hill who had pre- – pressured for that early on or um, saying that, you know, saying exactly the same thing. But, yeah. you know, this was something that I don't think, you know, it's even though the U.S. was warning this was going to come, it caught a lot of people off guard. And, uh, you know, there was a certain element of needing to ramp things up uh, mm-hmm. that just took some time for the administration. Is uh, is the MiG conversation dead at this point? They've been asking for more fighter jets to so-called close the sky. Uh, since this war has been underway, is, is President Zelensky any closer to getting uh, more jets? Not, not anytime soon. I mean, the U.S. does not want to have a situation where its pilots or uh, uh, pilots in, in uh, aircraft supplied by the U.S. or even NATO allies are in uh, direct confrontation with the Russians because the fear 
uh, that there would be a wire uh, yeah. spread to the war. Even if we gave them Russian-made MiGs, though, that doesn't change. It's more about where, where they came from, who who gassed them up and who flew them. Is that your point? That's, that's right. I mean, because they would have to come from NATO allies, so then Russia could plausibly claim that they were in a war with NATO, and then who knows if things spread. The nuclear plant is worth asking about here, uh, Nick. We know that this has become more precarious with time. Uh, we understand from the head of the IAEA that shelling has increased, presumably from Russia. How is this getting worse when we have inspectors inside? Well, uh, that plant has now been taken almost entirely offline, so it's no longer providing nuclear power. The IAEA was leaving a few people there uh, as monitors and in hopes that their presence would essentially help stop the shelling. But so far, there's no sign of that. So uh, that just continues to be aspiring of problem, one of many that we're uh, wow. keeping our eyes on at this stage. Incredibly dangerous situation. Nick, thank you, as always. Nick Wadhams, Bloomberg National Security Team Leader. You can read a lot more on the terminal here about not only the precarious situation surrounding the plant, but this breakthrough in the north, which is quite remarkable to see this actually taking place. It began uh, just a couple of days ago, southeast of Kharkiv, and it, it, it is taking hold. The Ukrainian force spearheaded by 15 tanks moving and overwhelming eight villages in less than a day, according to Bloomberg News reporting. We're going to add the panel to this, bring in Rick and Jeannie coming up next year on the fastest hour in politics. Check traffic and markets for you on the way. And a little bit later on here, President Biden's dream that he told us about last night. It's all ahead. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. As Ukraine pushes back on Russia, the word from the Secretary General at NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, is pretty straightforward. They have no other choice. If Russia stops fighting, there will be peace. If Ukraine stops fighting, it will cease to exist as an independent nation. So we must stay the course for Ukraine's sake and for ours. Let's reassemble the panel now. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Jeannie, that's a pretty stark message from the Secretary General. If we stop moving, we die, essentially, is what he's saying. 
That's right. And, and you know, I think l- reflecting back on what you were just discussing, I mean, who would imagine six months ago that Ukraine would be making the strides it has? But he's exactly right. If they stopped fighting, that would be the end of the nation. So they will fight. And this is the miscalculation that Vladimir Putin has made. Yeah. I think the real question here, you know, we know that Ukraine's ability to make these gains has come because of the support it's, it's received. Does Vladimir Putin do something? to try to disrupt particularly Western Europe support by way of grain or energy for the war? Or does he do something like Vladimir Zelensky said the other day, some kind of nuclear escalation? I think those two things are the real threat at this point that he realizes how frustrated he is and that he's not gaining and he does something you know, to escalate this even further. And that's a really, really scary proposition. Meantime, Rick Davis, officials in Kiev, including President Zelensky himself, are really trying to show the U.S. and allies that they can win this thing to keep the pipeline open. Yeah, it was one thing to stop the Russians. It's another thing to push them back. And I think this initiative that uh, is underway right now, that's been going on for the better part of a month, uh, is demonstrating that the Ukraine military has the capacity and the will to fight the Russians on their own terms and regain territory. And both, as you were describing earlier, in the south and the east, um, tactically they seem to be in incredibly good position. They've yeah. been taking up ground uh, with the with the resources they have. And so uh, there is some optimism with the notion that we aren't stuck in a status quo anti-position where the Russians hold the territory they've got. They, quote, liberate it and manage it like they did, you know, when they took over uh, Crimea in uh, 2014. Mm-hmm. This is an active war, and and there is ground being taken up now by the Ukrainians, and there's no reason to believe they can't continue this assault with the support uh, from NATO and, and our country. You heard Nick Wadhams mention that, uh, we, you know, we're sending a, a, another drawdown of weapons here, including the Gray Eagle drone. Uh, are... are are the weapons we're sending, Rick, up to the fight that Ukraine is in right now? Well, the weapons we're sending to Ukraine, from what we can tell now, are far superior than the weapons that the uh, Russians have uh, on the field today. Which they're we're, buying back from North Korea? Well, I mean, you know, in, in one of the things that we're learning is that they lack the resources to replace them. You yeah. know, the, the microchips and things like that that we're finding in used equipment uh, – uh, empowered by the Russians is second or third level kind of material. And of course, we're putting in, as you described, the Gray Eagle, which is the predecessor of the the Predator drone. I love these words and names, you know, <laughs> yeah. Air Force Reaper was one of the other sort of drones that they've been used. And these are very advanced first world uh, equipment. And the fact that that is something that uh, the Ukrainians can deploy gives them actually a tactical advantage in the field. And I think this is part of what we're seeing in modern warfare is the Russians are fighting a World War II style campaign in the Ukraine. Yeah, right. And I think the Ukrainians have leapfrogged that and are actually fighting in a real world environment. It is quite something, uh, Jeannie, to learn that the Russians are buying back Soviet made equipment, military equipment from North Korea. This is like the worst stuff on the market, right? But that's pretty much all they can get at the moment. 
That's right. Armament resupplies, artillery shells, missiles. And, and, you know, just a few weeks back, we heard that they were waiting or hoping, essentially, that they were going to be getting Iranian-made drones. And yes, that's what right. they were banking on. So, you know, clearly they need supplies, they need ammunition, and they're not getting it from the best sources. And this is where Vladimir Zelensky's campaign, I think, early on has played out so beautifully to get the support of the world, particularly the Western world and NATO. And, and boy, you can see that paying dividends at this point. Yeah. Jeannie and Rick, our signature panel here on Bloomberg Sound On. In our remaining moments, we turn to domestic politics just a day after President Biden left the bubble, left the White House and went down to National Harbor, not far from the beautifully lit well, what is it? Not a merry-go-round. Ferris wheel. That's right. You wouldn't believe it if you saw it down there. This neighborhood didn't exist a couple of years ago. But they held a big fundraiser down there for the DNC. And he talked about a dream that he had for the future. Imagine if we just elected two more Democrats to the Senate to keep the House of Representatives. Imagine. We'll codify Roe v. Wade. We'll ban assault weapons. We'll protect Social Security and Medicare. We'll pass universal pre-K. We'll restore the child care tax credit. We'll protect voting rights. Did you get all that? That's the list. If President Biden sees a Democratic majority on Capitol Hill, which no one is predicting. As I read now, 72 House Democrats say they are willing to force a government shutdown if Democratic leaders move ahead with a plan to, to put Joe Manchin's energy permitting bill along with this stopgap spending measure that keeps the government funding, because, of course, we don't do budgets around here anymore. Rick, what's your take on this here? It's been a really good stretch for Joe Biden and Democrats. Are we about to get into an argument of shutting, shutting down the government? Well, I would ask the Democrats, those 72 House members, how'd you like that Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah. Uh, because that came at a cost, and that cost, you know, explicitly a deal was made between Manchin and Schumer, to give Manchin basically control of energy permitting process. It's, it was a transaction. It's bought and paid for. And whether you like it or not, that's <laughs> how you got, got the one thing that you want to take to the midterm elections, the Inflation Reduction Act. So, um, you know, music to the Republicans' ears that they want to have a fight over uh -huh. this after the fact. But uh, the reality is, uh, whether you late. like it or not, that deal is done. So... What are we talking about here, Jeannie? We know, based on history, that the party in power tends to get the blame for the government shutting down. We're going to do that right before the midterm elections? 72 House Democrats think that's a good idea? Yeah, it's not a good idea to shut down the government, and so they need to bear that in mind. But this is a real controversy. I mean, we heard Bernie Sanders on the floor yesterday, and he was slamming this as a disastrous side deal. And we are hearing a lot, and that's where you get to these 72, and I suspect there may be a few more, a lot of even some what you wouldn't describe as far left Democrats who are saying that this deal that was struck is absolutely going to destroy that environment in West Virginia. And so this is where we come down to. I think they've got to be very careful because, of course, by the same token, they can't fulfill Joe Biden's dream of taking anything unless purple Democrats, Democrats in purple states are able to yeah. win and they won't be able to do that with a government shutdown. The uh, the permitting legislation uh, apparently could speed up approval of this of the multi billion dollar Mountain Valley gas pipeline, as it's called, that crosses 
guess what? West Virginia. Rick, how much of this is is about that, where it looks like Joe Manchin is enriching himself or, I guess, companies in his own state versus just the whiff of carbon? Well, I think I think it's a little both. Right. I mean, Joe Manchin wants more fossil fuels. That's Mm -hmm. just a fact. He happens to be a Democrat. Right. I mean, it's a little odd to hear a Democrat talking like this, but he's a West Virginia Democrat. It's coal country. It's oil country. It's gas country you know, fracking. And so it is who he is. And, 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 and his job is to represent West Virginia. And West Virginia is not a state that's going to have a lot of solar. Uh, it's not a state that's going to have a lot of wind it's, energy. No. I mean, and so they are who they are. And whether the Democrats like it or not, in a 50-50 Senate, they have to cut deals with guys like Joe Manchin. They've been doing it for the last two years. And to great effect, how many people have been touting the fact that there have been all these fantastic legislative achievements by Biden. And there's one person who's personally responsible for most of those in the Senate, and that's Joe Manchin. So, I mean, when I look at the grand total of the trillions of dollars that have been funneled to the American people, whether it's through infrastructure or COVID or Inflation Reduction Act, and and you've got him with his finger on the, you know, hydrocarbons. Look, I'm against it. I don't think we should be having more oil and gas. But the reality is, look what the trade is. I mean, really? You're actually going to stop the function of the federal government because of this? I mean, it's nonsense. Well, and it's likely just a threat uh, here, Jeannie. But when you listen to the laundry list that the president rolled out last night, codifying Roe v. Wade, uh, banning assault weapons and so forth, does any of that see the light of day in a split Congress no. I mean, you know, at this point, it looks like at the very least Republicans take the House. And so, you know, if but that Democrats, makes all of this moot, right, it makes all of this moot. And let's not forget, California is facing record breaking heat wave right now. Um, climate activists have a real and a fundamental and a fair point to make on this. Yeah. But a lot of what we've talked today, whether it's Europe or the United States, has to do with the challenge of energy moving to clean energy how do you do it these are real conversations to be had but shutting down the government is not the way to proceed there Jeannie, thank you and rick davis as well our bloomberg politics contributors in our signature panel here on sound on what a week i mean really have a great weekend i'll meet you back here monday i'm joe matthew in washington there's only one place you hear conversations like these this is bloomberg Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.